Hey guys, Austin Nasso here, and thanks for tuning into the Working Comic Podcast. I'm super excited to help you guys find your comedic path by interviewing entertainers, actors, filmmakers, club owners, agents, and just everyone around the comedy and entertainment industry to help you understand how you can become a better creative as well as navigate the complex entrepreneurial skills you need to succeed. So uh, this first podcast, I interviewed Dan Peralt, who is the co-creator of American Vandal, and he shares his experience uh, graduating film school all the way to creating a Netflix series. So this is my first interview. It's a bit choppy, so feel free to leave feedback in the comments. But without further ado, uh, thanks for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. Thank you. Okay, so today I'm here with Dan Peralt, the co-creator of American Vandal. How's it going, man? How are you? I'm good. It's a beautiful sunny day. Feeling good? Yeah, it's super nice, man. Um, So, yeah, this podcast, I'm just trying to get a feel for, you know, up-and-coming creators Mm -hmm. in TV, film, television, um, comedy writing, acting. And um, so we just want to get a feel for your life and how you got into comedy. Mm-hmm. So I guess my first question for you is, how did you first get into comedy? Well, I went to Emerson College for undergrad, and um, I went in with an acting major. I guess it was theater studies with an emphasis in acting. Didn't I'd always liked comedy. I was a huge fan, and still am, of SNL. And um, late night comedy, I was a huge Conan O'Brien fan. Uh, I had attempted to write sketches before, but just completely failed so I wasn't expecting that to be a big part of my life or career Uh, I kind of stumbled into a comedy troupe when I got to Emerson they're called Chocolate Cake City they're still around to this day Um, and that that and also the emergence of YouTube um, in the midst of my my college years uh, really kind of influenced my my uh, decision to be more comedy centric and also more of a writer than an actor Okay. Yeah. Were you always the kind of person to, like, make your friends laugh? Like, why comedy? Yeah, I definitely was. I think that, uh, I don't know. I just, yeah, I, I enjoy making people laugh. I enjoy, I guess what I really got into most, and I tell, this, I tell people this quote a lot. I might be paraphrasing this. Will Ferrell posed on the cover of GQ in a string bikini, and he looked ridiculous. And the quote he gave for that was... Uh, I'm not trying to look funny in that bikini. I'm trying to look good, and that's what's funny. And just articulating it like that kind of made something click to me where, I, you know, I didn't want to make comedies that were overtly silly or, or um, overtly comedic. I, I just really fell in love with the idea of, of doing, of having really stupid subject matter, uh, really silly uh, subject matter, and treating it so seriously like people like Farrell have done and I don't know a, a lot of the Apatow projects uh, Superbad is one of my favorite films um, you're looking at characters who, I, who yeah they, they are fairly funny in their own right but it's more often it's the situation that they're thrust into um, that that really make us laugh and how they react to it like the stakes in comedy should be as high as they are in drama and when I came to that realization I just I was really into that and wanted to make that my thing yeah, that's so cool because, I mean, just for your show, American Vandal, like, the whole concept is so satirical. Yeah. In a way. It's just, like, the concept 
is what is so funny about that show. Right. Whereas, like, when you get towards the, you know, ending episodes of the show, it's, like, actually very serious. When this project began, Tony and I weren't sure whether to make it a 10-minute episode web series or to make it a 30-minute longer-form thing. And um, I think the 10-minute version would have been more purely comedic and silly. Um, once we expanded it to uh, a four-hour story we realized well we're gonna need to do more than just this dick joke we need other storylines we need this to be uh entertaining and watchable beyond just a dick joke and so that's when we got more into these characters arcs and also these side stories these relatable high school stories that we wanted to tell in the in the frame of a true crime mystery um but we knew that this wouldn't be any good beyond the second episode if it was just the dick joke yeah, totally. I yeah. agree. Um, what were some of like the major life milestones that led to you making American Vandal? Like, what were some significant things you've done that have like gotten you to this point? Because selling a Netflix show is huge. Yeah, probably the most significant milestone that helped me sell American Vandal would be Tony. Tony and my experience with uh, mockumentaries. So we had never worked in TV before at Vandal, um, but we had done shorts with College Humor and Yahoo. Uh, we uh, we had a series of fake 30 for 30 sports documentaries where we pretended like sports movies actually happened. Like, so we had 30 for 30 Space Jam, 30 for 30 Rocky Four, Angels in the Outfield, and we had real ESPN personalities come on and just play themselves talking about Michael Jordan playing a bunch of aliens as if that really happened. Those were so great. Oh, so thanks, funny. man. So so that was that was uh, I think if we're talking like what helped sell this show we could point to that as something tonally that we had a handle on uh mockumentary in general and 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 just having that experience really helped us sell the show because we didn't have any other tv experience that we could point to totally yeah yeah that makes sense that's cool because i can see the influence from those earlier works for sure yeah um so you mentioned you worked on college humor sketches and mm. was it fandango yeah, Fandango. I was mostly a host for. I hosted, the, I hosted a, a kid show, and uh, I traveled a lot and had a lot of fun interviewing like Dwayne Johnson, who's like my favorite guy. I think he's my favorite person in the world, and uh, other people who who are also great. They, they, I just don't think anyone ever got as as cool as Dwayne. But that was maybe the most pure fun I've had in my career. Um, I do miss those days, but yeah, that was that was my job right before I we got American Vandal. That's so cool. So, yeah. you went to Emerson uh-huh. in Massachusetts. Yeah. yeah. So after school, can you walk me through like what was it like that transition from finishing college to your first like job maybe in like film or entertainment or like yeah. what you immediately do after school? It started with just total failure after school. So, I did okay as an actor in Boston. This At this point, I was like, writing and acting were 50-50 for me. Um, and I was lucky enough that I went to school in Boston at a time where the tax incentives really helped draw a lot of film into the city. And the other obvious advantage is that Boston just isn't full of actors the same way. We have plenty of great actors, but it's just... It, just the sheer numbers can't compete with New York or Los Angeles, which is great for young people like myself who can get a chance to 
uh, be on screen for a few lines. So I, I had these small parts. I had like three different small TV and film parts for projects that shot in Boston. I took that. That got me an agent in New York. I was feeling pretty great about myself because I was like, well, if I can get three roles in Boston, I mean, who knows how much I can do in New York. And that was the totally wrong way to look at it. Um, it I, I just couldn't have failed worse. I was... Uh, I expected to get roles, they didn't come. I expected to get money from my internship that I stupidly didn't ask whether it was paid. It wasn't paid. <laughs> um, I slept on a couch for three months before I ever got an apartment. How old were you at this point? 23, and uh, I was so dumb with the apartment situation. I was so like uh, depressed and like ashamed of my failure that I didn't even ask the guys for a key. The guys whose couch I was staying on, I was like, I don't want to bother him and ask for a key. <laughs> you didn't ask So I was just key. like, I would just hope that they were home when I got back <laughs> to the apartment as I came back from my shameful uh, <laughs> internship days. So those were the, those days sucked. What would you just do if they weren't there? Just like wait One outside. night I slept in a subway. I slept in a subway one night. That night sucked too. <laughs> that was my low point. Oh so, man. Yeah. But that was a... Uh, that was uh, not the best, but I but I realized a year in, I started to make some progress. I did take a few UCB classes. I got more into stand-up comedy. I got a job at a restaurant that I actually did enjoy. But I realized like a year in, most of my friends are one year younger than me uh, from school. Uh, a lot of the writers and actors I've worked with were from the year they graduated after me. They were all moving out to L.A. And I, I said with my, my $300 in my bank account and my... Uh, my very small terrible resume I might as well restart here and just go to LA where my friends are really yeah so I, so I did and yeah I mean like I loved going to Emerson Emerson taught me a lot of great things but I I, I gotta say the most valuable thing was the people I met there who I still work with to this day so obviously Tony Ascenda I, uh, my writing partner co-creator and director of these uh, of season one of Vandal he, uh, I met him in college. I met two of our best writing partners, uh, Matt and Kevin McManus, these twin brothers I met out there. I met them with this guy, PJ McCabe, who's one of our great actor friends, Jim Cummings, just a bunch of great people out there. Uh, now i got to name all of them because I just named, like, if I name five, you have to keep going. I know, because they're going to be like, like, why didn't you? two or three, you're so like... So we were listening to this podcast that yeah. no one... Else has listened to. All right, Brian Venuti's in there. <laughs> I'm not gonna get into my comedy group because that would take too that would take too long. <laughs> but special thanks to all those special people. Uh, and yeah, I I it was a huge advantage to have my friends out here when I moved, and we just started making shorts together right off the bat. So that was the first thing you kind of did, like yeah. once you got to LA, making shorts. Yeah. Um, so. Tell me about that a bit. Uh, how did you go about making it? Were you associated with any production company? You guys just had equipment? like. Well, the first short that we did, and when I say shorts, like these were YouTube videos. Like we sketches. Think, yeah, sketches. We, like, the kind of sketches we did, I, there's, there's not many of them out there anymore. Like the, the, na- the YouTube model tends to be like young guy talking right to camera kind of thing that like BuzzFeed made popular and it's like it makes sense they're cheaper and it's easier to just bang those things out the kind of things we do I don't even know if many people shoot these anymore but we would do like we would do these shorts mostly parodies where we would try our best to to match or come as close as we can to the production value of whatever you're parodying which of course requires a budget thankfully we met people who were able to 
do a lot of favors for us and hook stuff up for us because I had no money. Um, but we did a, a Nike commercial parody about Brett Favre um, years ago that was a, uh, that was kind of our first big thing. And we're so lucky that we found a guy who looked exactly like Brett Favre, who also happens to be a great actor and a great producer. Uh, his name is Sean Kerrigan, who also plays Coach Rafferty in American Vandal. Oh, so wow. when when we met Sean, that really opened the door. I don't know if there's anyone I've met out here that's that's been more influential on my career than Sean. Uh, him, Tony, and I formed a team called Woodhead Entertainment. Um, thankfully, we're still working together to this day, and uh, we would uh, we would make a new short every you know four or five months. We weren't really trying to establish a big YouTube channel. We were just like putting these videos out there about three times a year in hopes that people would recognize us and give us bigger paid work because we didn't make any money off those. We lost money. Um, but uh, And eventually that did work. It took like four years for that to work, but eventually someone noticed us. and So they just liked your content. And they're like like my gonna... manager, for example, who I love, uh, Todd Sellers, has I've been with ever since. He, he, well, two. I really did two things with the shorts. I, Tony and I wrote them. Sean was a huge part, our, our lead actor and producer. Um, but I also, I also did, a, I think, a pretty good job promoting them, and I, I made a lot of contacts with bloggers. And Reddit was a huge part of our success. So, you know, a huge part of us getting recognized was both the work we did, but also the work we did in promoting our stuff. And so one of the blogs, uh, one of the bloggers I created a relationship with, uh, posted one of our videos. My now manager f found that he, he went to that blog every day. It was a comedian's blog. Um, and from there he kind of found the rest of the stuff they had done and, and signed me off that. So, and from there, like I, I haven't been out of work since signing with him. Wow. So, um, so when yeah. you were first making these sketches, how did you guys get that production value? So it was mostly favors from like friends from Emerson Film School. A lot of uh, a lot of favors. Like for example, we did a Batman short. I want to say the budget was we probably spent I don't know thousand twelve hundred dollars something like that. If you do that without favors, that's a video that's probably going to cost you more like twenty grand. Um, we were able to get a club location for free. We had a lot of our friends do background work um, for us. We had a stuntman do a favor for us. And then most of the core people like our DP, obviously Tony and myself, um, we were just doing it to get ourselves out there. So um, it's not something that we could do now. It's It's the sort of thing that like, poor and in your young 20s you can get away with now of course like once you're established and once people are actually working you want to get paid so that doesn't really work anymore but at the time everyone was like just i need to get my work out there and, and the actors as well were of the same mentality a lot of the people we worked with um so the favors are the only way we could make that work that's awesome so where did you really you know find this network of people down to do these things like what are some of the most yeah common places huh i i mean like again my school i i, I work with a ton of emerson people and then after meeting sean he introduced me to a, a bunch of great people um 
So it's really friends of friends and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I guess I'm not the world's biggest networker. I, I, I've, I've been very lucky in meeting some talented people. Uh, and then, yeah, friends of friends. I'm trying to think specifically, like, was there ever a time? I did do UCB for a bit. I, I have met some people through that. Um, I think probably I met the most people. I dabbled with college humor. We did some work with Yahoo. And then once you get into that crowd, that circle of like a digital short producing companies, like there's a lot of people who, yeah. actors and writers who freelance with all those companies. But so. College humor and Fandango was after you guys were doing your digital shorts or during? I would say, yeah, it was during. It was during. It was during. So, I, like, the timeline was I, I, I got out of school, failed New York, moved to L.A., did shorts independently for two years, as I also did embarrassing other things to just, like, pay rent and stay here. Embarrassing other things. I was a kid's party entertainer. For, I wouldn't want to call that embarrassing. Actually, I was proud of my work as Elmo and Dora the Explorer. <laughs> that sounds incredible. Um, but uh, that was... a. Uh, that was my th- my weekends. I didn't even have a car. I would just I'd either rent a car or I would bus to kids parties all over LA. Elmo was my favorite. No, no, no. Elmo, I'm lying. Elmo was not my favorite. Hello Kitty was my favorite. Elmo number two. And then there were some costumes uh, that are just those are some of the my low points in LA. I used to play Batman. And I like Batman, so ordinarily I'd be like, oh, cool, yeah, I'll do Batman for a kid's party, hell yeah. But the Batman costume they gave me was just too tight for my face. And it would cut off, it would, it would like, slice into my, oh my. eyelids so that, like... <laughs> it sounds like a saw mask or something. <laughs> it was. It was torture to be in it. So I would tear up, like, I'd be, like, yeah, tearing because of the pain in my eyes. I'd be sweating... And then also, like, I got so hot, somehow also snot came and became involved in that. So it was just my face was soaked with all these terrible liquids from my body. And kids would come up to me like, Batman, why are you so wet? That sounds so terrifying for kids. It was awful. It's like mucus and bleeding. Yeah. (laughs) I got a complaint from a parent, like, he wasn't, he wasn't very, uh, he didn't listen. He wasn't very (laughs) responsive. Well... Lady, I'm like, I'm in constant pain, and also you can't hear. There's no ear holes for this Batman mask. So <laughs> that's what I did to oh, stick around. Oh, that sounds around. like a medieval sort of contraption. Uh, yeah, I would prefer the medieval contraption over the wet Batman. That is um, so funny. I don't know why I brought that up. Oh, I, I guess I was just talking Your about funny jobs. my order of... Yeah, so we were making... I was like... I was still happy because I was I was living with my friends. I... I lived with four other really close friends, and uh, we were just shooting a lot of stuff all the time. I also had a group called the Cleveland City Chuckle Squad. We did a lot of sketch videos. We pumped out more videos than Woodhead. Oftentimes, we w- if there was like a big pop culture event, we would shoot something the night of and release it the next day. So between Chuckle Squad and Woodhead, I was busy working on stuff I liked and then just doing whatever I could to pay the bills and in hopes that someone would recognize my work. Um, uh, a company called uh, Break Media that is most well known for screen junkies uh, and their honest trailers hired me um, to work mostly on their screen junkie stuff. Did that for a while, and then and then Fandango came calling, and that was so fun. So so all the while we're still doing independent stuff, and uh, and still doing per- in particular a lot of parody mockumentary stuff, and uh, until we came up with Vandal. Uh, almost two years ago now 
Um, but it was, uh, you know, you got to do what you can in the early days just to stick around. Part of the success in L.A. is just staying here, just surviving for a while. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, that's a little dramatic. I was obviously going to survive, <laughs> especially because I have parents who would definitely help me if I crashed. So it's unfair of me to say survive. But um, just just not quit. And don't quit. To like Kansas. Because also, think, let's think of it from a purely numbers perspective. There are so many 21 to 23, 24 year olds here. After school, everyone is like, you know, there, there's not a lot of expectations on you yet. And so that's the time most people are going to come here. And so you're competing against so many people your age, especially if you're an actor. You're competing against thousands of people your age and type. And then also there's there can be kind of a, a resentment towards newcomers here. So you have to get past the, the early 20 days, the early 20s years, um, oftentimes before you get paid, before you get any sort of legit work. And, uh, and there were times like age 24, 25, where I was like, I don't know, I don't know if this is going to work. I had a, what, what seemed to be a great meeting with a commercial production company. It was like, oh man, we're going to get good money from this. And that fell apart. And I was just like, yeah, I, 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 I now believe that I'm funny. I believe that I'm a good writer, but I don't know if it'll ever amount to anything career wise. And then it was probably six months after that that I started to feel like I was actually making some good progress. Wow. Yeah. Um, what are some habits you think people need to adopt, uh, like you were saying, in addition to persistence, to you know make it in this sort of space, entertainment space? Yeah. A manager friend of mine has said to me that you need two out of the following three for success in this industry, and that's uh, persistence, talent, and luck. Obviously, you can't do anything about luck. Um, but, of course, there's no excuse not to be super persistent and hardworking. Don't wait for a phone call. Whether you're a writer or an actor or producer, like, you know, with the technology we have today, the digital technology and film, there's, there's no reason not to make your own content. Um, it's hard to, like, convince your parents that that's the way to go. My parents have come around to like, they now understand that, okay, maybe working for free or losing money on some of these jobs wasn't that bad of an idea because it ultimately paid off. But yeah, you, I think you have to have some humility and, um, you know, do whatever you can to survive and generate whatever you can on your own. I, I, I think the simplest way of doing that is just shooting your own stuff. Whatever that means to you, though, it's just try to generate on your own, you know, and, and meet people who are like-minded and want to, would want to work with you. Definitely. Um, how did you go about balancing that? It's basically like a work, work balance. Like you have your regular day job and then you have your, you still have to make content and, you know, polish your craft. So how did you approach that balance? Well, that's why the kids parties helped because it was a weekend job. And so, and so I, I was doing background work. The issue with background work is that you don't know what your schedule the next day is until like 7 p.m. the night before. Um, and that's a pain in the ass. And it's also, it's, it's hard to schedule things. It's hard to, it's really hard to live an actor's life and a background actor, do a background actor job at the same time 
because again, auditions you might not know until the evening before too. So all of a sudden you're calling up both parties trying to make everyone happy and it's really hard to do that. I think that the answer is different for anyone, but if you're an actor, you're gonna need to find a job that's flexible enough. You can't be calling out of auditions too often. Um, if you're a writer, yeah, whenever, whenever you're not writing, be able to write whenever is, is, is for writers as an advice, a piece of advice I'd have. You know, on your break, after work, like I get a little too particular about, well, I like to write in the morning or I like to write here. Always be thinking. If you have like a main, if you have a concept that you're really driving towards, keep it on your mind. Keep it like, I, I come up with ideas in the car, walking around, shower ideas all the time. And just like write them down and always always be writing really or at least always have a part of your brain open to ideas i was just walking by uh we're on a lot right now i was walking by the other day and a fire alarm went off and like the story i'm working on now a fire alarm could actually or a fire drill could really help us so i'm like hmm okay yeah that's something so i wasn't at the time i wasn't actively thinking about the project but uh i was i would like I kind of set my brain to be open to these ideas um, if they come. So just always be in somewhat of a creative mindset. Yeah, wow. I totally agree. That's awesome. Yeah, so for your writing process, are you mostly like, um, do you sit down and write? Or um, I know you, you said you get gain inspirations and sort of have that notebook or note, notes mm -hmm. in your phone, I imagine, and kind of write on the go. Um, how do you balance that? Um, how do I balance it? I, uh, yeah, you know, I think it's good to have a mix of scheduled writing and then just kind of spontaneous writing. Sometimes Tony and I will, um, we'll do kind of casual writing sessions, especially when we're like in the early stages of a new project, which is one of my favorite writing times. When you just throw up a bunch of big picture things on the wall and see what sticks. Um, uh, Tony and I recently took a road trip this summer where it was a writer's trip, but also partially vacation. I think it's good to reward yourself. Like we would do like a couple hours of brainstorming, then go swimming or something and, and, uh, and then come back to it. One thing that's great, especially if you're writing something that's more along the lines of a mystery, is you'll hit roadblocks. You'll hit roadblocks in any genre of writing. Uh, but uh, when you do, sometimes it's nice to take a break, come back to it. So I do value kind of like unstructured writing days like that. Um, of course, when you're actually in the writer's room, things have to move a little bit more quickly and you need a little more structure. But I think, I think in the early stages, it's great to just kind of casually throw things against the wall and, and, and don't be too hard on yourself and have fun. I think that if you're bored while you write, it's usually a pretty bad sign, and I have been. Like, if, if I'm bored writing something, usually it's, it never comes out that good. So have fun, like, be in a creative space, especially in the early stages of a project. Do you write more alone or with a partner? I mean, Tony is my writing partner, and uh, I, I, we, we closely work with other uh, collaborators, a lot, of, a lot of whom we went to school with. Um, we do a mix of both. We'll have group writing sessions. Sometimes I'll go off and work on my own and he'll do the same. Since a lot of what we do is parody, we write a lot while watching 
the subject matter. So for American Vandal, you know, we take a lot of notes while we watch true crime documentaries. Sometimes we'll pause and bat around a few ideas, both as a group and individually when we're watching on our own. Um, yeah, so I do a mix of both. And so walk me through like when you're writing together, is it more like you guys are riffing out ideas and like brainstorming ideas for the show <clears throat> or whatever you're writing about? Or more like you're literally writing the script together? Oh, we definitely don't start with script. We, well, for this, for this show, we figure out the whole season's story, like the major points, the major arcs of each main character before we even touch a script. So, um, yeah, like season one, you got to know your ending. You got to know. We actually figure out the ending before we figure out the. Usually, we have the beginning and the end. The middle stuff, we get to last. We're like, we know where we're starting. We we know where we want to end up. What's the connective tissue that gets us there? Uh, so, and we figure out all that stuff before we ever write a single episode because it's so, each episode is so serialized, so connected to the next that we'd really shoot ourselves in the foot if we didn't know where we were going. Yeah. So yeah. once you have all those big ideas fleshed out, like the beginning, the end, and sort of ideas for where the middle might help might connect everything, yeah. um, do you guys actually write the scripts together or do you yeah. like send them to each other? And We do a mix. I mean, like there's some scenes he'll take on or I'll take on and, and come back and say, what do you think about this? And then he'll do a pass. Other times we're working on the same literal file at the same time there's a a site we like or an app we like called a uh, writer's duet that allows two writers to work at the same time on the same script so sometimes we're doing that and sometimes we'll split off work on a scene uh, separately and then come back um but there's never there's it there's never a surprise scene like oh hey look i i wrote this totally new thing that we never talked about um we, we for Vandal especially we have a very very specific outline of each scene and even even pieces of dialogue and and bits before we even script anything so okay yeah do you guys ever have creative differences in the writing process oh totally all the time and that's I I enjoy the feeling of being wrong when particularly when, when working with Tony because I'll feel strongly oftentimes about a comedic beat that he says may not fit the tone might not might weaken the emotional arc or whatever the character and and I when he can convince me that I'm wrong it comes from a very well thought out place he'll never just turn down something flippantly and say nah it's stupid let's not go with that he'll be like this doesn't work because of this this and this because this is where we need the character to go here that joke doesn't fit the tone like it'll come from a well he'll he'll consider everything I pitch uh, very, very carefully and thoughtfully, and the same goes for when he pitches me. Um, but the arguments will always happen, or I don't even want to call them arguments. Like the disagreements are just part of the process, especially having a writing partner. Sure. So usually one of you just concedes and realizes. It's not so much conceding as it is, um, like there haven't been many moments where he has stood his ground or I've stood my ground and the other just totally doesn't agree with it. Like that, that's very rare. If he, he or I have a strong, strong stance, 
The only time anything like that happens is if one of us has a very strong stance and the other doesn't have a strong opinion on it. Like, does this uh, a certain um, line from a talking head does that does that really is this funny or, or, or does it detract from the story? I don't know. There, there are rare instances where one of us won't have a strong opinion and the other's like, no, we need this. And yeah, the, whoever's feeling that strongly will go with it. Okay. There's also a few times where we in Vandal where we overshot, where we where we shot more to a scene. Like there was a whole monologue that got cut from the first episode where he's talking about his dog, and Dylan is Dylan is uh, relating his journey and how how misjudged he's been to how people misjudge the dog, and it was it was a dumb but ideally somewhat poignant monologue that. I was pushing, and it eventually got cut for good reason. We didn't it it slowed down the scene. But if we have the time, and if it's an expendable thing, that's like, you know, why not try it? We tend to give it a shot. Yeah. There's so much content that we shot for Vandal that didn't make the final cut, and we and and but a lot of it, plenty of it was unscripted stuff. Plenty of it was stuff that we didn't expect we'd need. That on set we're like, hey, we should try this out. And a lot of that did stick. A, a lot of the content, a lot of the moments you see in Vandal, um, we never had in a script. We just kind of felt out in the on the day. So you guys had a pretty like rigid production schedule. So how did you guys really have time to like improvise um, and also get those really funny shots as well? Well, we we really value improv. We would, we would do improv takes before we did scripted takes because if you do improv second then it feels like it, the improv resembles the scripted takes more than it does, it, it doesn't feel as organic that way. So we do improv first, then scripted, and then if we have time to do stuff that we, that we uh, if we have time to do a few alt lines, we do. Uh, of course, you have to keep in mind how much we had to get that. We had to we'd shoot so much every day. Uh, so we do, we do move fast. Um, we block shot everything, so all of Dylan's house was done the first week. Everything that took place there was done first week. All of the morning show room analysis between Peter and Sam with the whiteboard and all that, that was all the last week. So one thing I got to commend the actors on is how well they were able to uh, really jump back and forth between finale stuff and then early season stuff. Um, Camille Ramsey, who plays Mackenzie, she, her first scene was the spoiler alert, but the first scene that she shot was her breakup scene with Dylan, her last scene. Oh, wow. So these actors had to jump from like very funny, silly early season stuff to really emotional, sometimes angry, emotional end of season stuff. And you guys shot the whole thing in five weeks. Yeah. So how was that, um, schedule like how many hours a day were you guys shooting uh we usually start around six and wrap around um six seven eight o'clock something like that so they were long days but they were fun i really enjoyed that part of the process because it it's very active we're still pitching new stuff on set i enjoy that i love seeing our episodes come to life after months of just seeing them in scripts and so it's rewarding and it's it's more physically exhausting than it is mentally exhausting because you're on your feet for 12, 14 hours, whatever. 
the writer's room, um, which I love, and it really, it's, we, have a, we have a good schedule. We have a very respectable 10 to 6 schedule, so we can still do things outside of work. Um, that's more mentally exhausting than physically exhausting, and then production is more physically exhausting than it's mentally. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So you mentioned, like, you and Tony sometimes love creative differences. I was just wondering how that might go about, like, how you might go about resolving creative differences when you're working with the whole writing team. A lot of it is just people present their points. and The goal is to make the best show and to come up with the best outcome, regardless of who pitched what. And, and I guess it kind of works like a jury. It's like, you know, if one person feels super strongly about something, they'll outline all the reasons they feel that way. The other person will do the same. And as a group, we'll kind of decide what's the way to go with. There are some times where we just have to pick a lane. There are times where some someone might say, hey, I don't agree with it, but like at this point, let's keep going. Hopefully this works. Usually we come to agreement about things. It's, it's, ra- it's very rare that anything makes it a script that certain people don't feel comfortable with. Um, and it's just a matter of like presenting your point. No one ever pr- uh, pitches bits or, or character moments without good reason for them. And so usually you're able to defend your your choice but um, or your pitch. Sometimes I'll pitch some silly stuff that I'll admit, yeah, that probably is not going to work. But um, arguing's good. These debates and these, these conversations are great. They help kind of chisel the show that you're working on. You know, if, if somebody pitches something that's a bit too big for our show, well, it's good to learn why that won't work. And then, you know, the further you get along the season, the more people will, the, the more unified the vision of the show is. Yeah. Because we've kind of like, we've convinced each other and we've debated and we've talked over, we've talked about things. We, we eventually get closer to a unified thought, unified thought of what works. Um, you guys are all aligned pretty much. Yeah. At the end. And season one, of course, there's any, anytime you do, you know, and this is my first season of anything, but I, I imagine that anytime you, you start something anew, a first season is going to have challenges that subsequent seasons don't have. Obviously, you're still trying to find the tone. Uh, and we had a good idea of what we wanted that to be. Like we had a, we, we had a, a strong idea of this real serious documentary commitment that we wanted. But you're still figuring things out. You're figuring figuring out what kind of jokes are going to work in this dry comedy, and uh, that's a process that that you're not going to have done by week one. You're not. You're not. There's people are still going to be pitching, myself included, uh, moments and bits that may not fit the tone. But you learn that as you as you go along and kind of as a as a group figure out what the show is. Awesome, man. Yeah. Um, do we have time for one more question? Sure. Or do you have to we can do one more, yeah. Cool. So, yeah, just one last question. Uh, this is something I'm always thinking about. But, um, you know, what do you look for in a comedy group, a comedy partner, or, like, even just, like, finding writers to work with? Like, what's that? Like, what do you sort of look for in that? I, I love working with Tony for many reasons, but one, one of which is he's able to, when I have a kernel of an idea, something that's not fully formed, he can see what I find funny or interesting about that idea and then pitch on that idea. So it's a very additive process. The worst kind of writer's rooms and the worst kind of writing partners are the ones who just deny you flat out if, you, if, they don't, if they're not amused by your initial pitch. 
And I have worked in those environments where if you pitch something, you might get criticized if it's not a fully formed idea. So like that's that not encourage kind of, you to not pitch at all. Yeah, it, 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 you don't want to feel punished if you pitch something that doesn't work. So you want a partner who, if yeah, if you pitch a terrible idea that is just, there's nothing good about it, A, you want a partner who can tell you that. But if you pitch something that's not quite there yet, ideally your partner can take it the rest of the way. Or, like, more specifically with Tony and I, if I pitch a joke that might be a bit too big or out of character for someone, he'll say, well, I like, I like the direction. Here's the version of that that works within our show. Tony's great with tone, with, with uh, finding and, and keeping to a very specific tone. And so I, I pitch out. I'm a big pitch guy. I, I pitch out a lot of stuff. Throw it, a, throw a lot against the wall and see what works. And Tony does a great job of shifting certain ideas into fitting the tone of what we're doing better than my initial pitch would do. That's awesome. So I, I think find someone who can find someone who can uh, who respects, likes, understands your work, who can also like elevate it uh, instead of just. It shouldn't be a yes/no process. Writing with a, a partner shouldn't be a, that works, that doesn't. You're working together to figure out what works, and hopefully your partner can, can elevate what you do. Awesome, man. Yeah. Um, so any last plugs or anything you want to say before we close out? Let's see. All right, I'm going to plug my, my old high school videos because I started <laughs> making videos for a show called The Friday Show which is loosely what the morning show from American Vandal is based on. So I guess it's just a shout-out to the Friday show, and Mr. Thaxter, my teacher from that uh, class and show, um, who got me like thinking more creatively, but also I just really loved doing that show. That was like my fav- one of my favorite activities in high school. So uh, shout-out to those guys, and the high, s- the high school Friday show is still happening. So, yeah. Sweet. Uh, you guys are listening. Keep doing your thing. <laughs> Cool, man. Well, thanks so much for being a part of this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Cool.